G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for unsafe conversations. This is your refuge from the black and white world of right-wing blowhards and left-wing complainers. This is the place beyond the echo chamber of your social media feed and the partisan mainstream press. It's a place without good guys and bad guys where the only thing that's banned is taking offence at a true statement. Uh, and I suppose black and white worldviews as well are not welcome here. There are no taboos, there are only good arguments and bad arguments. I'm here to sniff them out. Change doesn't happen in an echo chamber, friends. Welcome to Uncomfortable Conversations. Today on the show, a beautiful discussion, debate, argument, disagreement, conversation uh, about what diversity means. Antoinette Latouf is an Australian journalist and a diversity advocate. She co-founded the Media Diversity Australia group in 2017. It's a, a non-profit that wants to increase cultural and linguistic diversity in Australian news media. Now, I spend a lot of time consuming a lot of news media that has very diverse faces in it, saying all broadly the same progressive things and not spending a lot of time getting out of their thought bubbles and experiencing points of view that come from perhaps less quote unquote diverse individuals, meaning working class white people but may actually be quite diverse ideas in the context of the panel shows where those ideas are not aired. What do we want out of diversity? Do we want a casting couch of different looking people or do we want genuinely diverse ideas? Do you need diverse people from diverse backgrounds in order to get those diverse ideas? I, we get into it all. Uh, Antoinette has a fabulous book. It's called How to Lose Friends and Influence White People. I hope you enjoy as much as I did this conversation with the one and only Antoinette Latouf. So what was your entry point into, into broadcasting initially? Um, or into journalism? So I, I, I studied social inquiry over the road at UTS, which doesn't exist anymore, but it's kind of like media policy research yeah. and comms. Um, and I wrote a piece for Heckler. Do you remember Heckler for SMH? Yeah. It was where like randoms could write yeah. in. I wrote a piece when I was like 19 and then I got published and then SBS Inside asked me to be a guest. Like in, and I had this argy-bargy with a like this prof awful bigoted professor at the time and then the um and then really bolshily went up to the EP afterwards and said you better hire me or SBS will and then I got hired oh wow and then like, so I did, threats I, are basically your main <laughs> your main a, tactic that was my that you was don't my, have to wear the earphones um, headphones if you don't want to I'm just yeah ultimatums and yeah and so um and when you I, say he was a bigot what was he what was he she, arguing oh she, she she was um so it um at the time there was a discussion in the UK about multiculturalism as a policy being a failure and that we shouldn't even try Right. Um, and so this was an exploration in Australian context. And I had written this kind of tongue-in-cheek piece um, in Heckler at 
in the Fairfax papers at the time about what it was like interning at a rural newspaper um, and the, just kind of the response from the rural community to me and the sorts of questions I got about where I was really from and right. why my hair yes. was so thick at the hairdressers. And, yeah. Yeah. And so it was just a bit of a light exploration about our superficial connection to But where are you really from, Antoinette? <laughs> <laughs> well, right now I'm from an illegally parked car. Just <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't building. get you parking either. No, um, I should have. Uh, yeah. And so when I, when screens. we were in the, on the program and she was, um, in support of assimilation and that we shouldn't try and, you know, and encourage people to be themselves and bring their cultural richness to Australia. And then I would, I responded to it. And then when the cameras were off us, she whispered to me, um, but you wouldn't know a thing about culture, um, which is like a really awful thing to say to someone. What's she talking about? What does she mean by culture in that context? I don't know. You don't go to the opera. Australian culture, I don't know, that I don't eat sausages at the beach. I don't know. Or I don't know how to swim when I go to the beach. But you're a tip. Well, actually, do you not know how to swim? I, I mean, that is relinquishing your passport right there. That's, That's right. I, I yeah, do not know how to swim. So I actually Australian admitted scene. that um, when the uh, Royal Life Saving Society of Australia released a report earlier this year. It was that, entitled Antoinette Latouf doesn't, doesn't know how, how to swim. swim. Newsflash. One, one deport her immediately. One in four Australians either don't know how to swim or are poor swimmers. See, and this so, is the problem with multiculturalism. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> They're clearly not white. <laughs> uh, right. So yeah. that, yeah, but uh, I mean, I think I think of you as a very archetypal Australian, actually. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, half of the country has arrived since the Second World War, including yeah. my parents. Like, yeah. we're, we're all, I mean, we are very melting potty, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the idea depends. that there's are a... we a melting pot or are we a mosaic? Because a melting pot would suggest that we all need to blend into one another. Oh yeah, I've heard of this di- differentiation. I yeah. mean, I use melting pot to mean mosaic, but but yeah, yeah articulate that dif- that difference because that's interesting. Yeah, well, a melting pot, I would say, is more about assimilation that we all kind of come in and we blend into the one sort of thing, and it's a probably the end product is probably a little bit more bland. And you know that that color you end up getting when you mix like green and brown and everything, it ends up kind of just looking like a diarrhea color, yeah. like a very un- Desirable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're a mosaic. I want to a... know what the the color experts at <laughs> at the color at the paint brands call that color. That. Yeah, yeah. diarrhea brown. Um, whereas a mosaic is where you bring your richness and your vibrancy and it complements one another and it's still unique and you're side by side and it's much more visually appealing mm. and far less like gastro issues. Yeah, I mean, I remember you talking about that in the book, but the I think that's a, a, a maybe a bastardization of what melting pot means. Because, yes. I mean, sure. when, you, when America talks about the great melting pot, I think they're talking about there being so many different communities in, you know, in so many different cities that are all living yeah. their own ways and they're all yeah. exchanging their own cultural norms and that it's becoming, uh, you know, uh, uh, something that's greater than the parts of its whole, not some, not an assimilationist worldview. What did you take the version of assimilation that this woman was talking about to be? Because, like, my grandmother-in-law, who's a Cuban-American, will, will very firmly say that everyone who comes to America should learn to speak English and you know, should learn the proper etiquette to be polite in, like, American company. But she would also say, like, she would be celebrating the richness of her Cuban background. And so, like, I sometimes don't, I'm not quite sure what we're actually talking about when we're talking about assimilation. Like, what is it that the migrant is expected to subscribe to? Because if it's if it's just learning the language, then lots of people will be on board. Yeah, absolutely. If it's changing their, like, religion, which might be the most extreme yeah. Far version than most people wouldn't be. No, I, I think um, 
I mean, again, it depends. This is semantic. It depends who you ask. But if we look at learning the language of the land, I don't think many people would object to that and having the resources to support that happening. To, you know, my, for example, my parents never learned to speak English formally. They were pu pulled out of school in, in Lebanon when they were eight and they never were never educated further in English or Arabic. And my mother learned a little bit of English through school when we brought our worksheets home and I got to maybe year two and I realised that she you know, that I'd surpassed her level of literacy. Um, but she would have loved to, to be able to speak the language. But I think assimilation is more than just um, adopting the language of the land. It's foregoing parts of your culture and your identity, and that might be religion and practices. Um, and I think that's I think that's the key thing. You, you talk about uh, the Cuban grandmother. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think she would uh, I hate to speak for her, but you say she also celebrated her Cuban history. Mm -hmm. I'd imagine she also celebrated, uh, maintained the language, yeah, her the traditions, language, her the values. Food, the, yeah, I yeah, don't believe course. that that is assimilation. Being celebrated for all of you and your whole identity is not assimilation. So, where, so then the, I mean, the critique of multiculturalism <laughs> then would be along the lines of sort of, I mean, even Angela Merkel made this critique of Germany, you know, somewhere in the in the mid twenty tens where there's concern about there being essentially ghettoized communities in poor suburbs of big European cities. It's mm. a phenomenon that we we don't have so much of in Australia, but uh, where there's entrenched there are entrenched kind of uh, cycles of of poverty, poor education, and family breakdown that are associated with particular ethnic communities, and that that has to be broken. And that a way to break that is to have some kind of a fealty or allegiance to a, a higher notion of the nation than just the one that you came from. Oh, I disagree. I would think the way to break that is through is through policy, is through support, is through allowing pathways, whether it be through education or better health outcomes, to break that often intergenerational poverty or disadvantage. Because then you look at places like, say, Sweden, which has quite God, the freaking Scandinavians do everything so much more egalitarian than we do. Um, and they have a, a significant uh, North African, um, Southern Europe and Middle Eastern population, but they don't have the ghettoization that, say, Spain or Germany has. So well, I increasingly they do, though. I mean, like you, you see, if you if you surf your white nationalist American websites, as I, as I occasionally <laughs> as will, to yes. keep on top of what they're talking yeah. about, they'll use places like Malmö as being a, an example, which is the Swedish city that's just across from Copenhagen and has a very large Muslim Arab population, much of which is young, high crime rates, uh, you know, social dysfunction, cultural breakdown. And, and, you know, they point to a lot of the right-wingers in America will say, you know, look at what's going on in Sweden. If you're too tolerant and you let, just let things let things go, then you end up with these, these nightmarish scenarios. So I'm not sure they're untouched by... They're not, but I think when they point strife. to those examples, they're more isolated examples sort of fixed in time. If you looked at where I grew up in, in Western Sydney and the, the Middle Eastern community, we had issues of, you know, where, where you want to call it integration or issues where we were continue to be in some regards overrepresented in the criminal justice system. So many waves of migration. That's a polite way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we actually don't have the data, but if I was to do a sample of my relatives, I can say that we are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. Uh, we commit more crimes, but uh, that's another way of putting it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but now, and interestingly, there are some research that's going to come out that I'm, um, I'm aware of that hasn't yet been released that has found that, you know, say, 15 years on from the Cronulla riots, there is so much more social cohesion and sense of belonging amongst Arabic-speaking communities than there was. You know, mm. so in some ways it's a, it's a, it depends on 
I don't want to say it's a teething problem, um, but, you know, different waves of migrants often have problems when they first come yeah. to a new society. Some of it needs to be put down to, to policy um, and the way in which they're supported to integrate and to, and to flourish. Um, yes, and, and at every point in time, of course, the people who've been there for a few generations always regard the, the most recent newcomers as being uniquely problematic in a absolutely. way that their forebears weren't. My mother is of refugees against refugees. Yeah, right. You know, so is she, she? She wants to shut the door behind her. Right. And I was like, but mum, you would never have been allowed in. Mm. And so when Peter Dutton a few years ago... This was the immigration minister. Yeah, so when he said that um, it was a Very mistake... It was a mistake to let um, Lebanese into Australia post-Civil War uh, or during the Civil War. My mom was like, I agree with him. I was like, um, wow. you were one of you them. You were literally one of them. <laughs> you were literally yeah. one of them. And so that's not in, in Australian multicultural history. That is not an uncommon phenomenon. No, um, no. Or anywhere, anywhere really. I yeah. mean, it's the same. I mean, my Cuban grandmother as well voted for Trump. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, no. again, that's a that's a... And I explore that a tiny bit in my book, um, but there's so much more literature about that. And that's a, a, as much about waves of migration and multiculturalism as, as it is about um, socialism and a fear of socialism versus perceptions of there's what a democratic that, and, fee, a freer and freer society is. And definitely among the Cuban diaspora, yes. there's obviously a lot, you know, a lot of that. But, the, but I think there is also a sense of, uh, you know, we came in with the right values and the people who are coming in now are just trying to scam the system and they're not coming in with the right values. They're trying right. to jump the queue in some way. They're trying to, like, this happens a bit less in Australia because Australia has had, I think, such a hardline approach towards unauthorised arrivals they for so long. The they can't, can't jump can't the queue because they can't get on the so island. Not, exactly, that's right. You're not going to get here. Uh, but in the States, obviously, where there's a significant problem with border crossings, uh, yep. you know, the, that just becomes the thing that she, you know, will, will hang her hat on. I'm like, yeah, but you came here on a boat. Yeah, you know, right. Um, so that's interesting. Um, I mean, so there's there's obviously the right wing sort of nativist, racist attitude, you know, opposition to multiculturalism and diversity. And then there's one that is a little bit trickier to, to get your arms around, which is the, as small L liberals, we believe in individual rights and certain universal values. And some of these new communities don't share those same values. So... For example, who's sticking up for the 15-year-old girl in Western Sydney who's in a very conservative Muslim family where, uh, you know, maybe the father doesn't want her to express the kind of feminism or maybe she's a lesbian or whatever it is and she's mm. in a highly conservative in environment and that that doesn't mesh with our progressive vision of liberalism in Australia. What do you make of that clash? Um, Dominic Perrottet and Scott Morrison. Because I don't think the leaders of this country um, espouse or advocate for the progressive views that you're talking about. I mean, Perrottet was, you know, actively campaigning against euthanasia. This is the premier of New South New Wales. New South Wales. Scott Morrison has very interesting views about gender equality through the prism of his wife, Jenny and apparently having two daughters, which makes him care about women, allegedly who uh, apparently care about women who are sexually assaulted. Um, so some of these... Right, but just because there are some people who are hypocrites who say something some, doesn't mean the that most the point... powerful, the most powerful leader of the country was and the most powerful premier in the country didn't espouse these values that you're suggesting Western Sydney Muslim people don't have. So I'm just, I'm just wondering, what's the, what's the... What's the goal? Where's the goalpost, and and um, who's there guarding it? 
Wait, are you saying that those people are hypocrites for uh, articulating s- supposed care about young girls in Western Sydney? Or are, well, I'm I'm just I'm wondering what what this egalitarian progressive society is. Well, suppose, when given 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 who our leaders have been up until a few weeks well, ago, we may, not, we may not have it, but let's yes. suppose that we've got someone who believes in it. Let's suppose that we've got a Jermaine Greer or someone yes. who who wants you know female empowerment and and uh, and and whose main lodestar, the main main guiding light, is to ensure that young girls are as uh, emancipated as possible. Uh, and there are cultures that are routinely more sexist and more oppressive towards young women than the Jermaine Greer ideal. Maybe not than the you know the the yeah. old fashioned white racist sexist Australian ideal. Yeah. How do you reconcile those? Well, again, I think that comes down to the avenues um, and support migrant families or new arrivals have. So the, the situation you describe is not dissimilar to my family upbringing. So I had a very patriarchal upbringing. My father's um, very conservative Arab, told me to drop out of school in year 10. I was discouraged from finishing school, let alone going to university, told that nobody would marry me and nobody wanted a woman who was too smart or had too many opinions. It was education. It was access to public education, free education that allowed me to navigate a path where I could challenge that and I was equipped to do so, where I could break the intergenerational reliance on men and women in domestic violence situations, which was you know, my mother and all of my aunts who were economic prisoners to awful relationships. So I think with access um, and, you know, with with things like free, educa- free education mm. changed my changed my life in the course of my, my siblings' life. Um, and how, what did you make of your relationship with your dad when you were young? <sighs> um, I understood that he was a product of his time and his limited education because he was pulled out of school when he was, I think, seven or eight. He was a shepherd before he came to Australia. Um, and so perhaps, I don't know, maybe this is the benefit of hindsight. I now understand that he thought he was doing the right thing. Um, whether that makes it okay, probably not. Um, was there a time where you believed him? That the, where you believed that his sexist worldview was the well, way in many are? ways. I mean, in some ways, he's right. Nobody does like an outspoken <laughs> um, Arab woman. I um, like you. Yeah, good. Thanks, Josh. Um, but you know, um, in in some way, in some ways, he did set me up for the sort of the unspoken sexism that still permeates Australian society. That we're still an unequal society. Right. But the funny the thing enorm- is that enormous advances. That guys like him both perpetuate and also make excuses for that same thing that they're warning you about. Exactly. They're Absolutely. like, don't go and get an education. People yes. don't like girls with an education. Exactly. And by people, I mean me. Yeah, exactly. And now, you know, he's he's super proud and he's come a long way. Um, but, yeah, I guess I'm thankfully I just didn't listen to him. Yeah. And I just, you know, and that's kind of set me on my life course. I definitely just didn't, didn't listen or mm. heed the advice mm. before me. I mean, I, I guess what I'm sort of channeling when I, when I point to Jermaine Greer is a number of ex-Muslim, of really powerfully intelligent ex-Muslim women who I've worked with in, in the States and in Europe who feel that maybe sometimes we can be a little bit glib about our um, attitude towards those communities in the sense that we're, we're extremely self-conscious on the left about um, avoiding any charge of Islamophobia, yeah. we don't. So we will. Yeah. Yeah. We have an instinctive knee-jerk, uh, you know, desire to yield to whatever the opinion of the most vocal member of that community is. But the most vocal member of that community may not be a guy who is all that wonderful, and yeah. may not share the ideals of the ex-Muslim women. They certainly don't feel yeah. that that guy did, and they would sort of like it <laughs> if. 
progressives in Western societies were more able to say, well, hang on, yes, it is your culture that, um, you know, I don't know, girls can't swim with boys, but here in this country we do, we do it that way. So, mm. uh, you know, you can't stop your, your daughter from going to swim classes or whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah, no, I, I understand. And there, and there is this perception that when it comes to sort of progressive values, it's okay to be progressive provided you're critiquing the mainstream. Um, but then it's kind of all hand, like step back, don't, don't attempt to, to critique those who historically have been more marginalised or minorities, even if they are problematic. And it is a it is difficult terrain um, yeah. because... Um, it, well, it, I mean, it sort of just means that anyone can put on the label of an oppressed group and all of a sudden you can't have... You, all rational arguments that you might have about any of their practices are verboten because you, yes. can't, you can't raise them, otherwise yeah. you're the bigot. Look, and I'm not a member of the Muslim community, so I don't purport to speak for the Muslim community, but what I have um, through through my advocacy work and my connections with lots of different multicultural groups, as particularly women, um, would say that it comes down to patriarchal um, religious, the patriarchal religious institutions where the imams or the sheikhs shit set agendas that are out of touch and out of step with where uh, modern Australians want to, you know, want to be. Um, and it's too difficult even from them, from within, you know, we call it lateral violence, we kind of punch to the side to openly critique. Like, for example, there was there was a, um, a situation recently where a bunch of uh, progressive, largely female Muslim women, Australian women came out because um, a large Muslim body predominantly run by Muslim men were was bringing out a speaker like a Taliban, someone from the Taliban, oh. um, and they were like, "How can you?" And this was after the Taliban seized control in Afghanistan. Like, how is this okay? Given yeah. what what is happening to women, how is this a sound choice? Mm, mm. Um, and it was kind of like a quiet revolt internally and quiet pressure internally. Um, and it wasn't just women, but it was in a more progressive. Um, Muslims, but there was a reluctance to take that grievance and that internal dispute to the mainstream mm. because there was already so much widespread kind of broad brush Islamophobia. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I guess that's that's the danger. Um, and I don't know if it's the same. I'd imagine, you know, there's differences of opinion and approaches within the LGBTQI plus community, but a community that is so for so long uh, being oppressed and mistreated and discriminated against. You mm. don't want to mm. be seen mm. to be critiquing. Yes. Um, I mean, even, even when it's valid. Even, of course, even I'm, when it's valid. I'm just a bit of an obnoxious firebrand, so I would rather have the conversation yeah. <laughs> you know, out loud. But yeah. I, take the, I, I take your point that there is a utility in having quiet conversations as well, you know, within the community, rather than um, allowing the, the, uh, the, the culture, the internal civil war inside the community to spill out and be perceived by, uh, be used as fodder by right-wing bigots. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because then nobody wins. Even, even myself, like when I, whenever I talk about, you know, fairness or representation or race or diversity, I just, I always have people going, yeah, but what about representation in Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia? What about women's rights in Saudi Arabia? And those things can be, those things can be valid, mm. but it's just a bit of whataboutery. Like yes, we're talking, right. we're talking here, we're talking Australian politics, we're talking yeah. um, Australian media, we're talking, you know, yeah, we're talking about. The, yeah, I think what they seem, I th what maybe what they think is that, <laughs> that like anyone who is, an Arab or a Muslim in Australia is secretly keen on recreating like a Saudi, the Saudi kingdom yeah. in Australia. But if it's the case that over the course of the first few generations, each each community in Australia becomes more moderate and becomes, you know, and and uh, inherits a growing fealty to ideals of liberalism and fairness and egalitarianism yeah. and things that Australia holds dear, then it is very much whataboutism because like, well, 
well, what's the point? Like, uh, bad, there are things that are worse abroad than here, so we're not allowed to fix any of our problems here until we fix those problems Exa- that aren't even our own. Exactly, exactly. And I think when when we look at radicalization. Um, and I just firstly would like to make the point that, you know, radicalization at the moment that's taking up most of ASIO, our security agent's time, is radicalization of white men aged 18 to 25 on the far right. But I've done some work with de-rad- in terms of de-radicalization of Middle Eastern, specifically um, Muslim men. Um, and it's when there isn't that opportunity to integrate and be part of Australian society, that they're more likely to double down yes. on some of these views. Yes. Um, and actually that's mirrored in the right-wing phenomenon as it, well, it, in, the, the, in the, the sense that, yeah, when you have a very cloistered, claustrophobic community that feels besieged from outside and feels like it can't, you know, say things and, and flourish, then it, it becomes toxic. Yeah, absolutely. And so I just think, you know, if and when done well, um, you know, in one generation, like my father's views and approach to life differs so wildly from mine. And that's, that's one, one generation. But I honestly believe it was education. And I had a wonderful Indigenous teacher at school who just fed me with books. And back in the day, even in the 90s, she was teaching me Australian Indigenous history, not, not in the way that it was taught back then that James Cook was the saviour of Australia. So I was taught critical thinking from a young age. And I just think it's so important um, to ensure that newly arrived communities have that access mm. to because education's power, and I can I can see um, the difference between myself and say my aunt who's illiterate in both English and Arabic. So um, absolutely, I mean, yeah. When I think about the strides that have been made from uh, you know my dad's parents to 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 me, uh, thanks to public education and. All the opportunities this country offers, it's its amazing. I mean, with, just to close the door on the multiculturalism versus assimilation argument, I guess the my sense is that the main concern that white conservatives have about multiculturalism is that you would end up with a country that is so fractured into small fragments that it can't really talk to itself about common goals anymore and becomes unmanageable or dysfunctional. And when I think about countries that actually do manage to kind of vaguely work in spite of incredible civil divisions, I do think about Lebanon as a, as a country that that stumbles through and is anti-fragile and sort of makes do despite incredible cultural and religious rifts that it's got yeah. going on inside it. Do I'll, you go back and what do you make yeah, of it? Is there I, a lesson in Lebanon? I do. Oh, I don't think so, unfortunately. I think um, uh, Lebanon is as much a victim of its um, sectarian and religious divides, but probably more so of its geopolitics and the fact that it shares a border with Israel. And I think I, I don't think they're the, the poster child for how we have a melting pot of ideals and views. Canada probably does does cohesion and representation better than Australia. Um, in terms of... Uh, the... I mean, I'm not saying they're a poster child. I'm saying they would be a warning sign. I mean, that, you know, they're not, they're, not, they're not Syria during the Civil War, but they would be the thing that a white conservative might be worried about. Oh, right. Sorry, I, mis- I misinterpreted that question. Um, well, I don't know. I just, I'm not sure the two are comparable because um, one doesn't, one isn't a, a, a migrant country, a, 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 a new, a relatively new country founded on waves of migration. I, I'm just not sure that you can compare apples, apples with oranges. Uh, Australia boasts, uh, politicians over the years 
continually use the line from both sides of politics that we are the most you know, thriving, the most successful multicultural country on the planet. It's what we pat ourselves on the back for. It's essentially how we define ourselves. We need to get that right if that's our defining quality. Uh, we haven't been able to reconcile our brutal colonisation. We haven't been to. We haven't been able to to face up to or or um, to to manage and deal with the ongoing impacts of that. And I think because our foundation is so unequal and, un and unfair that that's why new newly arrived migrants aren't able to to get that fair go and become Australian because. The, the foundations aren't right. Do you mean the foundations in terms of our relationship to First Nations? Yeah, Australians? absolutely. Yeah, our foundations to fairness and to racial equality. I think it's so fraught and problematic that any... And, and unfortunately, what then happens, and I explore that a little bit in my book, is that... And what I what I saw during Black Lives Matter is a lot of people from the Arabic speaking community posting shit like all lives matter and blue lives matter and, and really quite openly... Um, and fiercely turning their backs on um, First Nation and black communities in Australia, which I thought was gobsmacked. I was gobsmacked by that because growing up it was Middle Eastern men and Muslim men who were targeted, who were constantly reported on, who were, who, who were uh, there was a Middle Eastern crime squad that, wasn't, that was only disbanded a few years ago. Um, mm. We were the subject of targeted police um, you know, the amount of times my, my, my relatives got pulled over just for, like, they weren't doing anything and mm. searched and their cut in the boot search. And, you know, it was just that we there was an assumption that they were part of a gang just because of the way they looked or because they had a beard. And I just thought, wow, so how quickly you have forgotten that. And so many, and I talked earlier about my representative family sample of overrepresentation in prison. And so many of my, you know, when we talk about coming out parties, it's not about like coming out with your sexuality, it's like coming out of prison. Um, and we have parties, <laughs> gatherings where we welcome out where family members yeah, have the done their time. Pride flag for uh, how many years <laughs> you, you are, They've come out of prison. And so I, I found that really interesting. And I, I, and I put that down to, um, you know, if, if we're not black or if we're not at the bottom of the, the heap, um, then perhaps... We'll progress. Well, I mean, we'll it, it, it's further. a little bit like what you were saying earlier about drawing up the drawbridge, yeah. you know, on a recent, uh, a more recent arrival, isn't it? I mean, this lack of empathy between different communities. Uh, I, I, I mean, it is notable to me that, you know, Asian American friends of mine will be far more race, more casually racist towards black Americans than any yeah. white American would dare to be at the, mm. at the moment. So, uh, you know, we can still... I don't think uh, I don't think we need to deny the reality of the pecking order of, of white racism in order yes. to nonetheless also acknowledge that racism is not an exclusively white phenomenon. But here. there isn't much discussion about that. There isn't much discussion. There's so much in, in the race discourse about you know white white versus black racism, and mm. I understand that's the predominant and that's the structural racism and that's where power lies. But equally, da not equally damaging, but also damaging is the, is those communities in between, especially when they're growing, like in Australia. Uh, the, after England, India, and then China uh, are the most common places of birth um, for Australians. And so we have a really significant overseas-born non-white population. Mm. Um, and so I think we need more exploration of that inequality and racist attitudes from, I call it like brown on black racism. Yeah, and, and you think that is racism. I mean, there is a, there's a semantic game that's going on at the moment Um you know, in the the woker parts of the discourse that says mm -hmm. that racism is just is bigotry plus power. That you that if you're if you're being racist down, then it's racist. But if you're being racist up, then it's not actually racism. That in other words, a person of color actually can't be racist because they don't have the structural power to yeah. inflict 
I mean, I don't, I don't think this makes a huge amount of sense because I think bigotry is bad regardless of what well, it, it is. But but it depends how you look at it. Some some way I argue my, the very title of my book is racist. So it's called How to Lose Friends and Influence White People. I have actually had a complaint to the Australian Human Rights Commission on the basis of race <laughs> that I am racist um, based on my book title. Um, but you're and- not denigrating white people. Right, but people would, the argument is, and I've had a series of tweets and trolls who'd say, imagine you change the word white in your title to black. Right, I see. see. Imagine you change the word to brown or to Asian. That would be deemed. And so I guess it depends which way you look at racism. Is it an individual act of nastiness or violence or vitriol, in which case we are all capable of being racist and we all have and will continue to be racist in many different forms, unconsciously or not. If you talk about structural racism... I wouldn't fess up up to that. I think in the individual sense of racism, I can comfortably say that I'm not at all racist. Like but I, you can't, I, though. But I, I, I can. I mean, I can say that that I, I never hold uh, the belief that one race is superior to another. But never, maybe I not never... consciously. Maybe not consciously, but may, when you... I suppose we can all read the tea leaves about what might no, be going on. No, but if in... you walk into... Like, I did it the other the other week at a... at a, um, I mean, not race, on gender, um, when I was at an orientation for my daughter's school and they were like, oh, the principal's giving their address in the auditorium. And then I just asked a random student. I was like, oh, where's the principal giving his address? Mm. And they were like, it's a woman. It's a female principal. You know, in, in, in my... I yes, just... but I don't, I don't think statistical assumptions are the same as bigotry. Like, I mean, it, I, I, I take your point, but yes. I mean, you know, if, if you... It's like some people think that it's bigotry to think of an Australian as being a white person, but I think that's just rolling with numbers, isn't it? I mean, I yeah. think if you had to, you know, if I was on a game show and they were like, behind this door, yeah, there's yeah. an Australian, no, I, I, get that. I would I get go that. with like, it's a straight cisgender female white person because that's yeah, the yeah, group yeah, of yeah. which there are the largest number. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, what I'm saying is that I, uh, that I will consider, I think the respect in which we're all racist is the structural respect in the sense that we're all complicit in living in a society that, ha- that has its finger on the scales towards certain races and it is it just is easier to be a white male who goes to a private school than it is to be a woman of color right and that is just a a fact of life but you know what so many will dispute that that's where race discourse is up to in this country so many would be like but no it's not but i was raised even though i'm a white male i had a single mum, or i have a big mortgage or there is holding all other variables equal it's harder to be a woman of color than it is to be a white man absolutely well i think indisputably so yeah um, I mean, of course, the difficult thing, I think what then what people who dispute that now might be pointing to is that if you do hold all of the variables equal and you assume that those two people are of perfectly equal talent, equally articulate, equally good at their job, and those two people are currently going for a job in 2022, then on that, in, on that particular criterion, the woman of colour probably does currently have an advantage because we're, we've at least taken the diversity, inclusion and equity uh, yeah, you know, that's, policy now. That's and so certainly things... like at the ABC or in a big corporation, it's certainly an advantage to be a woman of colour if, if you're exactly as competent as a white man. I don't know if it's an advantage rather than there are now avenues and doors open that were previously shut. And so making things more equitable just means you need a different pathway. So so many people would say... Um, Oh, but, you know, this is reverse discrimination. And now, and I've heard this so many times, um, as a white man, I will never be promoted. Uh, but the reality is, when you look at, say, for example, ASX 300 boards, 95% are white. And so it's almost, if we let 
things roll out as they are, the status quo is you pretty much have to be white to be promoted. Um, so well, no, but that's reflecting the, the hiring decisions of the past 30 years or something because people stay on these things for quite a while. I mean, you'd have to look at what the actual hiring is right now. Right. And like, I right. mean, I so, have so ch- tons of friends on in big companies who say like, that I was just talking to a friend of mine who works at a big drug company uh, abroad and he has been wanting to come back to Australia. He's been wanting to apply for jobs maybe in Singapore. And he was basically saying because the company has a 50-50 quota goal uh, as so soon in, I think, 2030 and they have so far to go, there's basically no way that any, that any male can be promoted. I mean, they, so it, that's, that is just understood. And that's widely understood in many companies at the moment. But I, I think, and that individual grievance that your friend may feel is not the same as discrimination because it's trying to correct an imperfect and an imbalanced system. Yeah, well, he was simply saying that there is no, I mean, it may be a price worth paying, Which, his, the individual discrimination against him in order yeah. to remedy the historical injustice. Yeah. But it probably feels shit. It's still worth, yeah, it's still worth recognizing that there there is a, uh, you know, a, a firm policy of discriminating on the basis of something over which he has no control that people have not experienced really since the flagrant bigotry of the 70s and before. I mean, in the 90s and 2000s, you wouldn't have been doing that towards... You but wouldn't have actively been saying we're not going to hire Not actively, but it was, happen, it was happening silently and unconsciously because there are so many studies that are found, whether it's on a, through a gender lens or because of an ethnic-sounding surname, that people just... Their CVs weren't progressing simply because of their names. Mm. And so there were unfair barriers to your mate they may have had the exact same qualifications and they weren't getting a look in. So all this is doing is opening the lens so people get a look in. And so I just think people need to remember that. This is not pushing, I mean, when it's done badly and it's tokenistic, it's pushing people into roles where they don't have the qualification and then they don't strive and then there's resentment and then everyone fails and it's just shit. Well, how do you avoid that? You av- How do you avoid the tokenism? Well, then it's the it's the... Ensuring the timeline is realistic. Like, for example, with Labor, they got 50-50 gender parity. It took 20 years. And so I think so many, particularly in the corporate world, in response to stakeholder or customer pressure or just the political um, will of the of the time, that they want these things to happen quickly. Um, and so they'll push people or hire, in my, in my view, people into roles where they're not ready for. Mm. There needs to be a pathway. You can't go from being the diverse cadet to um, mm. having a really senior role. Um, it's, it's cultivating that talent and preparing them for success, not just hiring them to fail so that everybody then can go, oh, well, there's that diversity yeah. inclusion well, we bullshit tried. and let's not do it again. Yeah. Um, I mean, this comes back to what you were saying about education as well in the sense that, you know, there, is a, there are two ends to this, to this problem of representation. Excuse me. And one is the, uh, the implicit bias or bigotry of people who might be hiring, the implicit sexism or, or racism, and that's certainly been a factor historically. But then there's also the problem of the pipeline problem coming up from the other end in the yeah. sense that if you want perfect diversity of everything, then there may, just may not be as many Indigenous female neurosurgeons to pick from when you're hiring your neurosurgeon at the hospital, right? I mean, if yeah. you're going to have, a, have to have a perfectly racially equitable... Well, um, I think that the data is that eighty-five percent of diversity and inclusion 
policies fail. They don't meet their targets. They, um, even if people come through the door, they're out within a couple of years. And so very often it's done badly. It's it's poorly planned. It's not collaborative. Um, there aren't reviews. There aren't key measurables. And there there isn't a willingness to go, you know what, we got this wrong. We, we need to go back to the drawing board and start again. Or it's not well communicated or middle managers aren't trained and prepared into how to, to be inclusive and people come into these hostile environments and they don't thrive. And so I think it, 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 there has to be an understanding that this takes time and you need to invest at all levels and it's a longer-term thing um, because any shortcuts, I think, just gives the naysayers more ammunition to mm. go, this is just political correctness gone mad and I hate it and let's go back to hiring the people I go play golf with. Do you think there's a, Do you think that in the media in Australia there's a recognition of the importance of diversity? Do you want the long answer or the short answer? Whichever's more in- insightful. <laughs> uh, the long answer is the short answer is no. The long answer is hell no. Um, we lag so far behind, and there's some research coming out in a couple of months that I've been a part of. Um, so far behind, and they, they're not doing it perfectly, but they're certainly further along. We lag so far behind the the US, the UK, New Zealand, um, and even in Canada. Um, just recently, I was watching only because I was at my sister's house, a commercial network was on uh, that I don't ordinarily watch. It was the evening news. Um, And I I, I watched the whole hour of television and I counted. Every single person was white. Every single person. This is a country that our census just recorded. 49% have a parent born overseas. A quarter were born overseas. More than 35% speak another language. India and China after England. We are such a diverse society, yet our television screens, especially legacy media, continues to look like it's 1970s white Australia policy. Mm. There isn't even a recognition to do better. There isn't in in some major organisations, there isn't even a diversity inclusion policy. There isn't a plan. There's 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 enormous amount of defensiveness. There's enormous amount of pushback. They're not even trying because we know that you've got to try, fail, try again, maybe have one win. This is a long term. Again, I go back to the labor and gender parity. Mm. That's 20 years. Mm. Some media outlets aren't even trying. Mm. That's that's where we are in terms of actually not only realizing that it's the right thing to do, but it's the financially astute thing to do. Um, Well, I mean, it also opens up. I mean, it just opens you up to a whole lot of more experiences. I mean, when it works at its best, it's, it's bringing in points of view that are diverse, that are literally diverse, literally. right? I mean, you know, people people who have different uh, um, takes on things. Where it's, when it's done poorly, and you do see it done poorly in highly diverse media outlets in Australia as well, it becomes a tokenistic way of getting people who maybe, maybe don't have that diverse ideas all together in a room to reinforce uh, the pat status each other, quote, to pat yeah. each other on the back. But um, look, that person looks diverse, that person yeah, looks one, diverse, that person looks I diverse, agree. that and person looks diverse. One thing I have noticed, um, which is a, a significant disparity in terms of the diverse, you know, and there's probably five or maximum 10 of us in the media who are visibly diverse, who are known in the media. Most of us, I'd say, are progressive and liberal with a small L. Um, and it's at odds with broader what the broader literature shows on migrant and refugee communities who are more likely to be culturally and religiously conservative more Mm. likely to have voted no in the same-sex marriage plebiscite more likely to support um uh ensuring that new south wales doesn't roll out euthanasia laws um and so there is a diversity of you know of skin color and yes we bring a different perspective but i still don't think it represents 
the views. I mean, you rarely hear from those people. No. You rarely hear from those. You know, I mean, even when... It's funny to hear you point out the the hour of television on a commercial network because given the circles that I swim in, like, that is so alien. I mean, every single day, I do a three-hour show every single day and every single day we're talking about diversity. Every single day we're looking at the, the gender and racial mix of every guest. Every single day, every but single the, week, my producers are filling out mandatory spreadsheets about... Because it's a concerted effort. Yeah, about it's the... Tr- about hitting, you know, hitting yeah. certain quotas of of uh, of diversity, um, to I mean, to such an extent that you know, it frequently I think becomes somewhat counterproductive and spills into what you were talking about about the tokenism in the sense that if you're talking, if you want, if you're having a conversation in which what you're trying to do is gauge the opinion of Australia, then it makes total sense to make that diverse. But if you're having a conversation where you need to talk to the nation's leading expert on uh, epidemiology or something like that, then again, you bump into this pipeline problem of there just may not be enough women of colour to talk to about that who are available to, 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 yeah, to, for me to speak to at 2.15pm I think it's a, a balancing Tuesday. act, but just for too long, every time we interviewed somebody, and I have done the same thing, I'm, I'm guilty of this, it's, it's, you know, I call up a Sandstone University and get a professor called Andrew and John, and he talks to me about anything from North Korea to reproductive rights to Islam and the West to, and for too long, that's been the face of our expert. So we, yes, we have to work a bit harder. And yes, it's not a perfect science, I think. But without that effort and without then going, you know, perhaps that's where diversity inclusion policies need to be reviewed. Perhaps then you go back and go, you know what, this form that we fill out, all these measures, um, we need to change. Maybe it needs to be representation as a whole over the course of a month, because sometimes all we're talking about is interest rates. And everybody who's an RBA, ex-RBA is a white dude. And that's mm. just the freaking reality. So we're going to be in, you know, interviewing a lot of Andrew Peters and Johns. I mean, would you include diversity of ideas or diversity of political views? Yes. Well, I believe true diversity and richness of diversity will inherently bring that when when it's not tokenistic, right. that you will. But gee, it's hard to get fatuous, like, white lefties to understand true diversity. Yeah, because it's it's tolerable diversity. It's diversity that different I mean, they, melanin they that essentially, of, yeah, that I mean, essentially they, thinks like They me. want a bunch of central casting people who look different to them to reinforce the same ideas that yeah. they already believe in. I, I was working at the ABC at the time of the... Um, same-sex marriage plebiscite and everybody I was speaking to on weekends, weekend barbecues, everyone I was having social engagements with was voting no. And it was kind of like unthinkable and kind of unbelievable in the corridors of the ABC that Mm. you would know or be friends with or related to no voters. Um, And then then as it turned, I remember um, the editorial team I was part of, I'm like, I think I'm going to go to, you know, how the, the Yes Camp were all um, congregating at Alfred Park to celebrate. And I was like, I want to find out where the no vote, I'm going to ask where some of the no voters are going to be for their celebration or their pity party. And then there was so much pushback at the, at the, at that I was, I was called a bigot for wanting to platform people who had voted no. As it turned out, when the results came in, the two LGAs with the highest no votes was the LGA where my family was from. That's the council area. The, the local council area, area. Council area. Yeah. And the local council area my husband was at. So quite literally, the people we were having barbecues with and, and socialising with mm. were mm. Um, were these people. Well, they're culturally conservative, they're right? Absolutely. I mean, they're, if they weren't yeah. religiously conservative, they were culturally conservative. Yeah. Um, 
And even though I didn't necessarily agree with their views um, and I didn't vote no, Mm. um, I didn't even feel that I had the bandwidth to express those views or to platform those views. Mm. Then I know you you, you run down, you run into the argument of like, do you platform hate? And is this a like, but I'm like, well, if there is. Um, a plebiscite and a national discussion, if you really want to to challenge and understand views, you need to engage with them to a certain extent. How are you possibly going to persuade anyone if you don't understand what they actually believe? You know what I mean? That's, like, that's, um, how, that's, how, I, that's, how, that's my take. Unless I mean, you actually talk to people about what they think, then there's no way you're never going to win them over because you're just going to be speaking from inside your own bubble. It's, it's, it's lunacy. And that's why what I have witnessed, especially in the past five to ten years, is this perception that journalism as a whole is too left. It ignores conservative voices. It's anti-religion. It's anti-nuclear family. It's anti, you know, and, and I think that, I mean, not quite as pronounced as the United States, which led to, the, you know, which contributed to the election of Trump. But I think that's really dangerous. I think a media that's really out of touch with regular people mm. of all shapes, sizes and um, ethnic backgrounds is dangerous. At the federal election before this one, the Bill Shorten and Scott Morrison election, which all the polls were saying that Labor, Bill Shorten was going to win, uh, the, the left-wing centre-left party was going to win. I was at a fancy party with a whole bunch of media elites uh, on election night. And I was the only person saying... I think Scott Morrison's going to squeak it, squeak it in. I don't think yeah. Bill Shorten's. And everyone was like, "Oh, stop being such a party pooper!" Like yeah. you know, Shorten's got it in the bag, and it was amazing to me. A the sort of shameless partisanship of it all, and B the cluelessness about how Middle Australia actually felt at mm. the time. The you know the 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 blindness to to the suspicion that people might have of huge uh, left-wing social programs for example and yeah. you know and the the sort of the the mateship and and sort of cultural ties that people might feel towards the uh, a blokey center-right leader it just yeah i do think it's a worry it's a worry if the if the media loses credibility by drifting too far from where the heartland is yeah and i think i mean cultural diversity representation is part of that i think it's also um our our bureaus are so city centric and by city like really cbd our regional presence um and under the abc because it's mandated still has and it's um it doesn't have to worry about commercial pressures in the way commercial media outlets do we almost um negligible representation of regional stories. I mean, I think that all plays a part um, mm. and that is all probably Well, in the ABC's defence, they're really going, hitting uh, Western Sydney hard over the next decade or two. You know, um, there's a lot of the, they, they have a pledge to, to get a significant pr- proportion of ABC employees well, out of as, the capital cities and, and certainly out, sh- of, out of Ultimo. Yeah, as, you know, as they should. Yeah. Um, and I, I did note you know, during lockdowns and during the pandemic, I mean, we're still in the pandemic, um, even the Western Sydney reporter didn't look and sound like somebody from Western Sydney, yeah. which I think is, you know, even if they are a great journalist, there are certain things and insights and connections, particularly for communities that were treated differently mm. um, in public policy, um, in, in restrictions about what they could and couldn't do. I just think the pandemic um, and the public health response, you know, out of that, Someone born from from the Middle East was taste in Australia, like a Middle Eastern is born Australians ten times now the data has shown ten times more likely to die from COVID than right. white Australians. Right. Uh, I mean, it has real world real implications. Yeah. This is but beyond being PC and box ticking. Um, public health messages weren't cutting through. Trust in media and government wasn't cutting through. How do you make sure that the PC box ticking doesn't actually undermine diversity of thought? 
Well, I mean, diversity is one thing and inclusion is another. And so a lot of diverse people who work in mainstream media have said they've had to leave their religious or political views, check them in at the door because it's such a secular, generally such a secular progressive environment. That's and yet not everyone, inclusion. Yeah, and everyone thinks that they're being t- terribly inclusive because you can be any but, gender or if yeah, you're LGBT right. and they'll be like, or anything. And they'll be posting yeah. like falafel photos at mm, the at mm, Eid festivals and mm. be like, yeah, look at, you know. Um, yeah. And so the, that's that's the inclusion part. And the inclusion part is, is harder is harder to, to nail. And that's where people can really bring their whole selves and their whole skills and their whole perspectives to an organisation, not just their physical demographic attributes that can, right. can help fill out a form. I mean, when, you know, when we're putting together panels, for example, you know, I'll often moderate panels and there was a, a policy of, uh, you know, you shouldn't, you should never appear on a panel that doesn't have a woman on it. Um, there are certainly policies of like, if you're going to be talking about anything that has to do with First Nations affairs, then you should, you need to have a First Nations person on I support the, on the panel. Uh, I certainly support the. There's no need to have a panel that doesn't have a woman on it. On the First Nations thing, why do you not think that it's tokenism necessarily? Since there are such a wide range of views within First Nations people. I mean, for a start, there are so many hundreds of First Nations nations and different attitudes towards towards things. What I find that it can be used as an excuse for is for the organizer of the panel to pick uh, a way to essentially launder their own point of view through the mouth of... Because you can pick... I mean, you'll be able to find a, a First Nations person to say basically whatever you want because there are lots of them and they all have different opinions about things. So you pick the one that, that reinforces your opinion and you get it, it then has automatic credibility because it's coming out of the mouth, mouth of the right person. I don't know. I think it's more problematic to have and what we have seen, especially in legacy media. Um, I mean, all, um, yes, this is, not a, this is not a way of saying that you, you should just have white people talking about the experience no. of and, and, and First Nations people. And it doesn't have to be people. one First Nation person. And that's the other thing. There's, there's this thing that, that there's a brown view or a black view. Well, that's sort of what I mean. Yeah, I mean, that, we're, like is... we're a homogenous whole that don't disagree with one another and have, you know, even with, this, with, the, with the Uluru Statement of the Heart, in, not all Indigenous leaders agree or support it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of disagreement about, you know, how much, uh, you know, whether or not uh, towns should be dry or whether there should be there should be alcohol in some, uh, you know, uh, indigenous towns about, you know, what how much should be done by police intervening into domestic violence uh, in indigenous yes, communities. Yeah. There are all kinds of differences of opinion within the community about, um, you know, the, the whether or not there should be COVID vaccines, you know, during the pandemic, whether those should be mandated, whether people should be removed from the community and put into yeah. quarantine so that they're not endangering the lives of elderly Indigenous people who live in the outback. I mean, there's so huge many. range of opinions. Yeah. And I completely take the point that if, you, if what you're trying to do is understand the lived experience of somebody, then of course you need the person who's actually lived the experience. But if you're talking about policy, if you're talking about data, if you're talking about like, what should we do? Yeah, but there, there are in, in, you know, Indigenous academics and authors and policy writers who are, whose expertise is those very things. I think it's a dual responsibility. It's a dual responsibility on the organisers and also for the panellists themselves. So I get asked to be on so many panels and speak to so many different things and it is my job to then go, you know what, I'm not the right person or I want to amplify this person who yeah. has a different view or who's the next generation thinker. You know, I get asked to speak on panels about disability. I don't have a disability. Mm. I don't have a lived experience of a disability. Um, and so I take, 
it's a privilege to be asked. Why are you and to have getting invited? <laughs> I don't get invited on panels to talk about disability because you know diversity umbrella term. Right. I don't know marginalisation. I don't know, but it's. You know, I'm being proactively discriminated against, is what you're saying. <laughs> that, <laughs> In the it. casting that's of it. disability and panels, and so I take that. Um, you know that role. You know, I understand it's a privilege, but I take it seriously and as free often as possible. St- step down where where applicable and suggest somebody else mm. um, or push for. It doesn't need to be just one person. You yeah. know, like three cis white dudes, um, mm. straight and me. Yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and so you can challenge the entire composition. Or give up your seat and suggest somebody else. Yes. The, I was just reminded when you were talk, uh, talking about that of, uh, I was just watching at my brother's place some new Netflix show that has Chris Pratt in it and he plays like a uh, some Iraq Special Forces guy. And uh, about halfway through, my brother's wife goes, I think Chris Pratt and that other guy are the only white people in this whole thing, right? It's yeah. every single cast member, but it was all the bad ro- it was all like the junior pos- roles right are all co- are all people of color this is an american show obviously yeah and it did seem like the kind of like if you're going to invest all that money in netflix why don't you find actual interesting stories that are being produced by people of color and they are doing some shows do better that, than others which yeah sure they fi- that's fine but are we also not allowed to just have a chris pratt um, Iraq show where it's just white, majority white people. But how many shows like that are there? And quite frankly, I'm sick of like American lens shoulder, like uh, shows through the lens of an American soldier in the Middle East. Well, because I've seen, I've anyway, seen so many of them. A, I hate the way Middle Easterners are represented. I hate the white saviorism and the good guy narrative, good guy, bad guy narrative. So I would be very happy to never see any... Uh, uh, US-based show set in Iraq I mean, or clarify, Afghanistan ever these, again. These weren't these weren't people of color in Iraq. This was like back in the shadowy, uh, like military-industrial complex in right. Washington DC, where like these evil board members are all around the table, and it's a black guy, it's an Asian woman. It's like, and we were just remarking on the fact that a that that wouldn't be the racial makeup of this board at at Evil Globo Corp in real in reality. <laughs> so it's a little bit jarring yeah. and tokenistic. Yeah, so like ra- yeah, rather and than and B, they're not these people are not being given the opportunity to tell any interesting story. It's the same cookie cutter yeah. kind of Hollywood bullshit, and they think that they're doing the right thing by you know casting uh, board member number seven. Yeah, yeah. As like an Indian from an Indian, as an woman, Indian or whatever. woman, yeah. Instead of just being like an old white guy, which is probably what the evil, uh, you know, board member would be. I don't know. Yeah. In, in fairness, I mean, there are probably, I would say, there are more hits than misses. Like when it comes to drama and the streaming services, like there is a variety of, um, a broader variety of content. You, you see disability represented so much more and normalised so much more. Sometimes it feels tokenistic, you know, like a disabled person with disability just gets wheeled in <laughs> into one scene, says something to, and then just wheels out, and that's kind yeah. of it. Um, but I think it's getting better. It's certainly further along than news and current affairs. And is the reason it's important because... Audiences want it. Well, it could be, because, I was going to say, because um, we want the things that we watch to reflect the society that we're in or because we want the we want actors of colour to get jobs? 
I think it's a combination. People want to see and feel themselves. I know from like myself, like for so long, all I wanted growing up was, you know, blonde hair and freckles. And now I'm very grateful for my olive skin that ages a lot better than people who have freckles. <laughs> um, you know, but for so long, I never saw, I never saw myself in anything. I didn't see, I didn't, when people go, who is your, your career idol growing up? I don't know. There wasn't anybody that I could aspire to that I, I that resonated with me. Um, that's, I imagine even more pronounced for um, for black communities um, in Australia. So I think it's you know in some ways when it's drama you want you know you want fantasy you be want to be you want to be taken elsewhere. Not everything is a is a story about life and a connection to the heart and identity. And sometimes it is just escapism as you binge on Doritos. Um, <laughs> but I think there's there's so much there is so much research. It is irrefutable that we connect with things that resonate with us and where we see ourselves, not necessarily our, our skin tone, not only our skin tone, but our stories and our lived experiences. Mm. Um, so the streaming giants aren't doing it to be politically correct. They're doing it because well, they have doing, global audiences. No, they're doing that to be politically correct. I mean, hopefully when they're investing in people's actual stories and when they're supporting interesting, innovative, creative voices from outside the mainstream, they're doing it because they think that they're going to create something good that will resonate with people. But I don't believe that they're, they're, they're casting not, board member number seven. No, as an not that. Of that course, reason. of course. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that, that's... That's, that's the issue. You know, when we, when we talk about change, change takes time. There are often errors, um, two steps forward, a step back. Um, but so often people just want to focus on that and go, yeah, but what about the tokenistic board member, board numbers? You know, that, that didn't work as though, oh, we should just stop trying. No, yeah. yeah no, and I don't think that's the takeaway. The takeaway so is... So what does trying look like in a, in a, in a form that is going to uh, bring along with it the majority of white Australians whose hearts are generally in the in the right place, but you know who don't exactly know what to do and don't want to certainly don't want to feel like they're complicit in some vast evil white supremacist superstructure. <laughs> um, well, one of the things I often talk about is people need to they just need to do the do some work, do some reading. Get it, you know, get educated. I know it sounds really cliche, but there are so many people. It sort of does. Like, what does it mean? Like, what what should they be reading? Because like you know, book. most of them <laughs> for start. But you know, there there is so, there's so much literature. You know, and if reading's not your thing, there's so many First Nations thinker, even African American. I know it's dis- different context. African American thinkers, um, Asian American writers, comedians, podcast. There is so you know, if if reading's not your thing, and film is, some do it through comedy. There is. There's this thing circa 1997 called Google, and you can find things like, you know, to, especially after Black Lives Matter. Well, you can watch Dave Chappelle and be cancelled. Oh, gosh, that's, yeah. Do, you want, to, do we want to go there? Well, it's not homogenous, is it, is all I'm saying. Like, you know, it, you can, it's simply going, I'm going to go and watch somebody who's black, and that's going to give me an enlightened no, point but, of view. No, but, but just sitting there going, work. I don't know what to do, and I'm so fragile and feel guilty, and I'm just going to sit in that. That's not going to help yourself or anybody. No. So you need to do something, and what you shouldn't do is call the closest brown or black person and go, hey, mm. educate me and tell me what to do. Let Let my you know, my crap be your burden because they've no doubt got enough on their plate. Um, and so you just need to figure, like, learn and listen and try and you'll get it wrong. I've gotten it wrong. I'll probably continue to get it wrong. I try. I've realised in the past I haven't been the best of allies necessarily to Indigenous communities. That's something I'm really conscious of and trying yeah. to do better. 
Yeah, um, me too. It does seem like the penalty for getting it wrong is getting harsher and harsher, which is why people might be more afraid to try. Harsher for who, though? Well, harsher for the white people who try. Do, do you think the penalty is harshest? And this this comes back to the whole cancel culture and who does cancel culture really cancel and who comes back from it, who survives it, who survives a mistake and who's given a second try and who doesn't. Because I know that, like, the Piers Morgan will say that... Oh, yeah, there's totally he's a... And he's got a huge billboard, you know, yeah. and a show talking <laughs> yeah, about being yeah. censored. I'm like, yeah. bro, you're not censored. Yeah. Um, Steve Price, a conservative commentator, recently wrote a piece in Australia about if you're white uh, and male and straight, you can't say anything without being cancelled, says the guy who has a column, a TV show and a radio show. So those who were proclaiming the loudest to be victims of cancellation still have platforms. So I think it just goes back, we need to ask who truly gets cancelled. Yeah, no, there's... Where are the consequences felt the hardest? Completely. And and there's a huge amount of of sort of disingenuous right-wing shtick around cancel culture. Um, But I don't think that the existence of that sort of hypocritical shtick uh, is like disproves the caution and the treading sure. on eggshells that even, a lot of even, regular because even uh, I'm I'm cautious about things like when you mentioned Dave Chappelle I was like <gasps> yeah am I, I going to go there am yeah. I going to say the right thing am I going you know um, so there so there comes a, there will come a point and you know we could go into like the the causes of the rise in far right nationalism and the causes of Donald Trump and the causes of you know the appeal of far right candidates in Europe and and so on um, but I. I do wonder whether or not encouraging people to think about themselves as identities first and individuals second and encouraging us all to think about ourselves as sort of warring tribes fighting fighting for visibility uh, whilst that may indeed be the the path that we need to go down in order to but the rectify ca- but the, but the historical is that, wrongs. The counter-argument is that those who don't have to think about their identity, it's because their identity has never been threatened or deprived of access to power. And so people who go, oh, I don't want the fact that... the you know, It's so funny. I so often see um, you know neo-Nazi types sharing Martin Luther King's, you know, um, I want my children, I don't know, the, the verbatim, um, to be judged by the content of their... What's the, what's the, the content the, of their the character, character not the and the colour of, of their, their skin. skin yeah. as, you know, as a, like an anti-diversity, anti-anti-racism anti kind of pledge, as though yes, it's like it counters right. that. Like, yeah. we shouldn't be told to... Consi- but women's identity is a pre- does predetermine in many, in many ways their access to education, health, Indigenous women's overrepresentation, the fastest growing uh, prison population in Australia, being who they are. Well, women are much better educated now in Australia than than men are. I mean, women are graduating uh, universities at higher rates and they're they're performing in schools better than men. Yes, but then that doesn't translate in the corporate world when it comes to pay disparities and representation in boards. So something is broken. Well, again, there's a twenty or thirty year lag, isn't there? Because most people have been most people haven't just graduated. Yeah, we'll sure. See. We'll yeah, see well, I mean, for in indigenous for indigenous women, the markers for migrant and refugee women, they're overrepresented in precarious and service industry jobs. Who and, and for you know, those from the LGBT community, I can't. I'm not part of that community, so don't profess to speak for them. They many have said to me that they're. Their identity is in part political because you know, the same-sex marriage, the same-sex marriage plebiscite, the national, there was a national conversation about whether or not they, uh, these individuals can get married. It became political, and so it's easy when you haven't had to fight for certain freedoms and certain access um, to power uh, or to fairness to go. Oh well, our identity shouldn't be it shouldn't be identity first. Well, it's like well, if your identity is a precursor to your life chances and your and your and the out, the doors that are open to you, well. 
it, it is political whether you choose it or not. Yeah, I mean the the the, the sort of naivety of the of the white male towards identity politics is precisely what I'm talking about. I mean, I think that naivety has been a blessing since the Second World War and it'll be interesting and as I said, it may be necessary for us to stoke up these identitarian grievances in order to rectify the situation of the past, but it's also worth bearing in mind that encouraging white males to think of themselves as white males is but, also but like, hazardous. Is it? Because that's just what they are when they look in the mirror. I don't understand what that's, what's so hazardous. Like, I talk about privilege. Well, look through history at the times when, like, you know, white young males have run amok and really been proud of being... I, I'm not sure that we want people... Like, as a gay Jew, I'm not crazy about straight <laughs> non-Jews being really proud of how great it is to not be a Jew and to not be gay. Right. So you think that that asking people to look in the mirror about being a white man or whatever it is, is just going to lead to them being more entrenched in their... Asking them is fine. Um, creating a, an environment in which they feel like they're being, they're being backed into a corner and they have to sort of defend their identity and everybody else gets to have an identity, but they don't. Uh, and everybody else gets to play the grievance card, but they don't. And that there, there is a, a, a peril there. Mm. Okay. One thing I had a conversation with a with a friend recently who said there's one demographic of people that nobody cares about in Australia at the moment, and that is a working class white man, you know, an unemployed working class white man. Nobody in Australia cares. And this is from a man of colour, a Muslim man of colour. Nobody cares about that demographic who's, you know, intergenerational unemployment, potential alcoholism, abuse, they're up against it as well. Are there life chances better still than yours, Antoinette, for example. Like, and I'm, I was like, I, I, don't know the, I don't know the answer for that. I understand the collective empathy for white men is pretty small and probably diminishing. Um, and if we, you know, we can always conjure up individual, um, individual examples of some, where someone's worse off than others. And I, and I guess all I ask people to do is to no, no longer think of privilege as a dirty or bad word. Like I'm privileged like I'm, I know that, the, for example, my name, Antoinette Latouf, I have a French name. My cousin who's, you know, Leila, aunt's Leila Abu Sleiman, have such a much, a much more Arabic sounding name that my name will probably in a CV pile get, oh, that's a bit, oh, quick, Marie Antoinette, cute, you know, um, <laughs> that I'm an Arab, but I'm a Christian, that I have an Australian accent, not an Arab accent. I don't wear the veil. I, I'm university educated. I'm slim. I'm, I've got straight hair. Like all of those things I know have helped my, my television career. They're not dirty words and they're not, they're not things I'm ashamed of, but I'm just aware of them and I'm aware of how that has enabled me to navigate um, power structures. And the media is a power structure, not, you know, not always with success uh, and with definite hurdles. That doesn't make me a bad person, but what I do, how I acknowledge those who have less access and have more barriers, I think speaks more to my character than how much time I spend pitying myself and what I try to do and what I implore others to do is to sit and acknowledge their privilege, be cool with it and see what they can do with whatever power they have to then help those with less power than them. Um, and I guess that's if you're an aggrieved white man wondering but feeling you're backed into a corner, there's nothing we didn't you you didn't decide to be born a gay Jew. I didn't decide to be you know uh, born as a povo Western Sydney Arab girl but they're the cards we're dealt. It's what we do with them that I think matters most. Antoinette, 
a delight to talk to you. What's Likewise. the book? Where can people get it? Um, it's called How to Lose Friends and, and Influence White People. It is at all good bookstores and some average ones. Um, did, you, <laughs> did you read the audio book for it? I did. Because oh, I read the hard copy of the of the book, but I always love it when the when it's a, a, a story as personal as, as yours is. To, yeah. I feel like I should listen to the audio book. Yeah. Terrific to talk to you. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.